Welcome back to the Casey Adams Show. Today, we are joined by Asid J. Malik, the founder of Jadu. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Absolutely. I'm glad we finally made it happen. I know. It's, uh, it's been quite some time, and it's been so incredible just watching your journey and what you guys have done. And you know, for the people that may not know what you built at Jadu, I would love for you to give a high-level overview of what it is before we dive into it. Sure. Yeah, so Jadu is fundamentally an AR company. We've been building augmented reality from an entertainment perspective for a long time. Um, that involved building narrative experiences that we would take to film festivals like Sundance and Tribeca. And, um, you know, throughout this journey, roughly two years ago, we got really into the NFT crypto space and, you know, we're really active there. And out of that has basically emerged the position we are in right now, which is we are a reasonably well-funded large AR company essentially trying to build a new form of AR game. So cool. And you know, when I, when I think about AR, it's, it's, it's something that truly excites me, right? I, I think the, there's a lot of people that you think about virtual reality and AR augmented reality there. It's, it's a different, uh, different landscape, right? And when you think about AR and where it is today, what, like, what is your, consensus of where AR is today and what direction is it moving in, in terms of the use case for people watching and listening that may not be utilizing it today? Mm -hmm. I think, uh, honestly, the best way to look at the landscape is by breaking down the companies that are operating in it at the moment. So, you know, on one hand, you have enterprise AR, which we're just going to put aside for now because it's, it's a thing on its own. People use it in warehouses and architecture firms and design reference material, th things along those lines. Um, but if you look at the entertainment or consumer AR, you know, which is the category we're active yep. in, um, you have Niantic, right? Niantic built Pokemon Go. Yep. And Pokemon Go is a map-based AR. You know, that's what it does well. It puts things on the map. You go find them. So it's, it's a very specific focused genre of AR. Then you have Snapchat, TikTok, and Instagram. And they do a very different type of augmented reality, which is filters, yep. you know? So their AR, the primary purpose of their AR is to record a more interesting 2D video. But it's not about the 3D. It is about the 2D video at the end of the day. Um, and once again, if you look at the landscape, that's where it ends. There really yeah. isn't anything else when it comes to consumer AR that's really being used. And what we do is we do augmented reality that is about your immediate location. So wherever you are, we augment that reality. So, you know, we want, we're building gameplay that, you know, uses your walls and your plans and your immediate location to give you an immersive gameplay experience in that location. Yeah. And, you know, for the people watching or listening, you were showing me something before we, before we hopped in the podcast and like seeing it, right. It, it's such a different feeling than just hearing it. Like we're talking about right now, how do you describe what you've built in terms of, you know, utilizing AR in, the, in your room and the walls, like for people that might not understand that concept, I'd love for you to just break down sort of what you showed me in terms mm -hmm. of what you've built in a way that people could understand without necessarily seeing it yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are a couple of fundamental pieces to the way we're doing things. One of those pieces is that our gameplay revolves around a playable character. So, this is a pretty fundamental shift from how people think about AR because AR has always been thought of as a first-person medium. You are the player. Yep. You're looking at your surroundings. You're interacting with your surroundings. 
but you don't need a character because you are the character. Yep. We are treating it as a third person medium where we're giving you a character and you're moving the character around and the character is actually engaging with the world. And that fundamentally changes a bunch of things. First of all, it gives you a lot more mobility. You know, if you're sitting on a seat, you can't really do much if something's behind you. But <laughs> if there's an avatar, you could get it to run behind you. Or, you know, you could you get two degrees of mobility rather than just the one uh, camera that you're holding. Um, another thing it does is it makes the content and the experience much more rich because you have something there that's interacting. And if you post a video of that on social media, people kind of know what's happening. There's a character yeah. is going around. It's not just from a first person perspective. So that's one thing. Um, the next thing that we're doing is what I was just showing you, which is this idea of remote multiplayer augmented reality. Which is very fascinating, by the way. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things which, you know, we pinch ourselves and we're like, <laughs> why? No one's done this before. It's just kind of obvious, you know. But AR from um, a multiplayer perspective, whenever you say multiplayer AR, people think of two people in the same room looking at the same content at the same time, yep. which makes sense. You're augmenting reality for two players, so it's multiplayer AR. But what people have never really considered is what if you could do remote multiplayer in which you have two different people in two different locations looking at the same AR content together, in which case two different realities are being augmented at the same time. So what that means in our case is I can have my character in my room, and if you're in a different room, I can see your character in my room too, and you can see both of our characters in your room respectively. So both realities are being augmented with the same content. Yeah. It's very cool. And, you know, I, I have so many questions and, and we'll go down there, but I, I want to take a step back and sort of dive into your journey as, a, as an entrepreneur. And what, where did this idea and passion for creation and building come from And when it comes to your journey as a founder? Um. I mean, we can go pretty, we can go far back with yeah. this, obviously, because, uh, you know, when people are kids, they're, you know, playing with their toys and all that. I, I had a, I had a very uh, rich relationship with my toys. <laughs> okay. Um, In what way? Well, honestly, I was really into WWE and uh, professional wrestling and all that. Just okay. the theatrics of, um, you know, like people playing these gimmicks and characters in a live setting and whatnot really fascinated me. So I had a pretty elaborate world with my toys where all of them had kind of a personality and a character and rivalries and yeah. relationships and, you know, things would just unfold over long periods of time. And um, when I was around 11, I got into making websites and just being on the internet, making things on the internet that other people were using. And, you know, that's a pretty familiar journey. I think a lot of people have gone through that. And yeah, honestly, the last like two decades, I've just been making things on the internet and one thing after the other, you know, I landed in AR seven years ago. Wow. And since then, it's been very much focused on AR. Uh, and where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Pakistan. So yeah. I'm from Pakistan. I lived there my entire life. Um, I was there until I was 16. That's when I got a scholarship to go to a high school in the Netherlands. Wow. So I went to the Netherlands. And when I graduated from there, I took a year off. And then, long story short, I ended up in this art school um, in Vermont. Wow. Yeah. Art school in Vermont. What, um, what led you like after Vermont, you know, we met just, I think just under two years ago here in LA. Yeah. When did you come out to LA and what brought you out here? Um, as soon as I graduated from, uh, college, I, I came to LA. Um, 
you know, the choices were really just San Francisco and LA because New York yeah. is too cold. And San Francisco, it just wasn't as appealing, honestly. Like, as someone who came here with the Silicon Valley dream with the intention of, you know, being in tech, um, I just started finding it really homogenous. And, you know, I wanted a place that had more of a creative scene as well. Mm-hmm. And LA kind of fit that. That's awesome. Uh, coming from Pakistan, living in LA, when did you um, get to LA? Like, wh- how old were you? Were when it comes to the company and the life cycle of building, uh, mm-hmm. like where were you in life when you moved out of here? Because I think just over the years of now seeing what you've built and the, the creative process, it's like this has been a phenomenal place in terms of the, the industry, the culture. But when you moved to LA, was Jadu a thing or when did that start? Um, Jadu was a thing before I moved to LA in the sense that it was a thing on my notebook. You know, it wasn't a real thing. Okay. Um, you know, we had lived in LA for short spans before, like three months for a project, you know, yep. do something, take it to festival, go back to school. We had done that a couple of times. So through doing that, we knew we wanted to end up here. And so when we graduated, and when I'm saying we, it's me and Jack, you know, who was my uh, co-founder and went to uh, school with me. Um, so when we moved to LA, when we actually fully moved, we incorporated Jodhu immediately. So you know, it was always the idea for the the long term sustainable project. Yeah. Because we were tired of doing one off projects, we wanted to do something that we could really put ourselves into for a long period of time. And so Jadu was incorporated at that time without exactly knowing what it would become. You know, the the point was to build consumer AR in a new way and reach a large audience. What shape it was going to take wasn't so clear, and it's evolved a lot since. Yeah. And getting into AR and, you know, not necessarily knowing what direction it was, the company was going to go in from the start, that passion for AR, you and your partner, like what were some of the, the opportunities that you saw early on with AR and like what sparked that initial interest? So, um, you know, the initial interest, if you don't mind, I'm going to put my hair back. Yeah. Yeah. With the, yeah, the headphones. Is that okay? Does yep. that work? Yeah. Fine. I can, I'll re the question too. Okay, that's good. So when you were starting Jadu, what initially sparked your interest in AR and what opportunities did you see early on? So, you know, it's a, it's a really, this is an important question because, you know, I've been doing this for the last seven years and I foresee myself doing this for the rest of my life, just wow. AR being the focus. And um, it goes back to kind of my teenage years of... Uh, you know, some level of existentialism of being like, all right, like I'm here, I'm here on this earth. Like what's, what's meaningful, what's valuable, what, what do I want to contribute to? And when I started asking that question, um, I was like, all right, is it humanity? Is it the earth? Is it the environment? Is it our solar system? Like the further you go out, you realize, well, you know, value is very hard to grasp. And so the conclusion I came to, which has stuck with me so far in terms of what value is, um, I thought that the fact that we exist as really complex observers of our universe is really valuable. The fact that all this is happening around us and we are here to observe it in incredibly complex ways, more complex than anyone has in the past, in my opinion, right? Uh, As far as we know. Are there aliens out there that are more complex? We don't know. Um, (laughs) And with, with that perspective, I want to just contribute to 
humans being able to further, even with more degrees of complexity, be able to observe and comment on the universe. And if you think about that, what are the avenues at our disposal to do that? Really, there is AI, VR, and AR. Those are really the big ones in our lifetime that are going to continue going. And AR was one that was really intriguing to me because it had a lot of creative potential. It was very visual in nature. Um, it was different from VR in a few key ways. On one hand, wasn't removing you from reality because reality is really quite interesting and we've <laughs> barely scratched the surface of it. Yep. Um, so instead of going into completely going inwards, which what VR does, this is engaging, you know, the world. So to me, a a AR was the ultimate medium. It's a medium that brings the vastness of our existing reality and combines it with the vastness of our vir virtuality. And so with that, I was like, okay, I'm going to do AR my whole life. And then the question was, okay, what makes sense right now? And in terms of the landscape that was existing at that time, um, it was really mostly like architecture and references and things like that. So I wanted to start making more creative narrative work. And at this point, we are quite, you know, literally focused on gaming, which is yeah. where I think the, most of the potential lies. That's fascinating to hear, like your perspective on like VR, AR, and like understanding why, like looking outward instead of inward. Um, like, where do you like think of AR versus not versus, but just how they work together and and how they're different? Where do you see VR? Right, like you see all of this push with Meta and, and obviously Oculus. Where do you think that currently stands from the market, right? I I, I, just, I know I saw Apple is coming out with their headset. That's, I don't know when exactly it may be coming out. But what do you think about VR in the context of uh, what it's doing in a productive way versus AR overall? I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I think fundamentally, conceptually speaking, there are different mediums. One is about, you know, distracting you from your, your reality and giving you another reality to deal with, whereas the other is very much about getting you to focus more on your existing reality and look at it from different perspectives. So, uh, you know, they're different, but they're also very close together because they're both on a similar trajectory in terms of hardware development and yeah. the type of people that fund the stuff. So Apple's headset or Meta's headsets, they're both, you know, AR and VR is both quite closely tied together. They're, yeah. Both those headsets are going to have mixed reality views and, you know, like pass through AR and things yeah. like that. Um, but if we're just talking about the differences between AR and VR, VR is going to serve more of a purpose of, you know, what television serves. You know, it's not with you at all times, but if you want to have an immersive experience and really go through something that's more than what your phone can offer, you can go do that. But I think that the market is going to be comparable to, let's say, like the console market. Got it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, I, I want to talk about Jadu. You guys raised a, a large Series A, and as you said, that you're well-funded and you have an incredible product that you're building in the gaming space. What has that process been like when it comes to, you know, diving into NFTs and then raising a large round of funding and now having the ability to go do the things you guys want to do. I would love to walk through that process on when NFTs came into the picture and what it's been like, um, you know, working with some of these partners that have invested into the company and, you know, what the future beholds. Yeah, no, it's been, uh, it's been a pretty wild ride, honestly. Um, so the way it started was I moved to LA 
and we incorporated Jadu and we got a million dollar check from Verizon to build them a bunch of, mm. you know, AR that was more education oriented, 5G use cases essentially. And so we took that money, used it to really hire our initial four or five people. Yep. So we had a small team and we were doing some contract work, but we were also building on product because the intention was build a product. And the product we had identified was we wanted to build a mobile app that was really clear. Um, we wanted to reach a large audience where they are. And the shape that the app was initially taking was we were doing these holograms of various musicians. And it was very much along the lines of when TikTok was really blowing up and the pandemic was starting. So we would record these holograms. You could place the holograms in your room, record videos with them and post them on TikTok. That That's was, awesome. it was a pretty straightforward model. It was the limitations were that the holograms couldn't be very long because we would actually need someone to come to a studio. We would record them with 106 cameras, reproduce wow. the image. It was a whole Oh my thing. God, 106 cameras? Yeah, 106 cameras. Oh we were capturing God. volumetric video. Um, the department that built that technology at Microsoft got shut down last week. So everyone got fired. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. So we were on that wave, but that wave has now like pretty much... Yeah. I wouldn't say ended, but you know, a big part of it has. Yep. Um, so we were doing that for a while and we raised uh, a pre-seed kind of around um, over the course of a year. So the first we took a couple to $50,000 checks from a couple of professors that uh, knew me from college and they were just really excited about what we were doing. And, you know, and then we raised a bit more a year later from some uh, Pakistani investors in New York who'd gotten really excited about what I was building and the fact that I was a Pakistani, that was a factor yeah. for them. And so we got like, I'd say a million and a half worth of pre-seed at that time. And we built a small team and the app was, you know, starting to be a thing. Um, we worked with Lil Nas X for his Call Me By Your Name song. Okay. You know, that was like a big yeah. moment for us. Um, and so along around the same time the nft stuff was starting to happen and we were dipping our toes in it personally like me and a bunch of other people in our team were you know we i i put out i directed a music video for pussy riot that sold as an nft it's the most expensive wow. music video ever sold as an nft no still yeah wow so that was like my first nft and when that happened um we, we realized that there's a lot of potential here because a lot of the, the concepts that were coming out of the crypto space around interoperability and, you know, this idea of the metaverse, um, we didn't, they didn't directly apply to us, but they applied us uh, to us in a really interesting AR kind of format. So with that, we started building, you know, these accessory items, jetpacks and hoverboards that were NFTs but they were interoperable. You could use them in AR. You could use them with your character. This is how we got into the third-party character as an avatar model, which I'm really happy we stumbled <laughs> upon that because of yeah. this. And uh, the way it happened was we released Jetpacks. They sold I remember, out. I remember this. Like, continue. You guys sold out, and it was such a moment. Yeah, it did, that that you know, I I tell the story always. Like, um, it was our first mint, so I was pretty worried. It was a custom contract and everything, and. You know, when the sale went live, I went to the website and tried to get one just to see if it's working before I make the announcement. And I, you know, submitted the transaction, made the announcement, came back, and my transaction had failed because we had sold out before my test transaction. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's how quickly Jetpack sold out, which was well, ridiculous. 
And why, and, and just for, for context of the, the audience listening, you know, what, was this 2021? Yeah. 2021? Yeah. Like, NFTs and, and the market now, right? It's obviously way different from 2021, 2022. And there's, there's been a lot of changes where where do you see the market now as a company that you know you're not necess- you're not just an NFT company by any means, but you had this idea and you you executed on it in the market that at the time was you know growing very very quickly. It still is, but it's been a it's changed a lot. Where do you see NFTs right now? And and then I, I want to talk about you know some of the the experiences that you've learned through the NFTs and over the course of the last two years. Yeah, so. Um, it's in a very different place right now. It's not nearly in as much of an optimistic place as it was at that time. And what was happening at that time was definitely mania level, you know, and like we all <laughs> like, you know, you had a sense of that. Yeah. And so that's actually why we, after Jetpacks, we raised a seed round, um, that general catalyst led and the NFTs were, you know, like I had a call with Nico who, uh, is the, our main investor from general catalyst and him and I have a really you know, great relationship. I learned a lot from him. And, you know, he was like, look, like, we think what you're doing is really interesting. It's really novel. It has this obvious use case right now. We don't know if this will be the use case in the long term, yeah. but we trust in your tra- team and what you're building. But it's really about the AR. That's why we're investing in you. And um, so we went ahead and released hoverboards straight after because there was so much momentum. And hoverboards, you know, did really well. We made four or five million dollars on the pre-sale. So wow. um, just with the second sale, we had basically made the money that our, we had raised in the seed round a <laughs> month ago, you know? Yeah. So because there was so much momentum and we were finding so much progress with hiring and we had attracted a lot of great talent, that's why we went ahead with the Series A. And the Series A was, you know, in retrospect, at least right now, I think a great decision because the markets got really bad, you know, they got really bad really quickly. Yep. We were one of the last rounds that was at a 200 million plus valuation for, you know, a company that's at our stage. Wow. And now is that a good thing or a bad thing? Time will tell. Yeah. But the bottom line is we raised money at a bull market valuation and are now spending it in the bear market in bear market terms. We're being very careful where our runway is quite extended. We have money till late 2025, you know, and yeah we can sustain a good size team till then. And we have a lot of plans in the meantime. So coming back to your question about the NFT space, um, our strategy right now is that we're not making new NFTs. That's, that's um, not a great way to reach a large audience at the moment. And so we're keeping it to the collections we have because we have those holders and we're really treating those holders as early supporters, you know, they're not our final audience. I think that's a mistake. If we only start building for the people that hold our assets, we don't grow. We need to grow to a large audience. That's how it's going to be best for our holders as well. So that's kind of how we're treating it. It, It's so fascinating. And I, I love the way you think about it. And you know, that that's a use case and that's, that's a representation of the early adopters to what you're doing. Um, I'd love to learn about your experience fundraising, right? Like the, the markets, as you said, were very different and to go raise around that you did, as you said, a 200 plus million dollar valuation. Was that your first time raising capital for a, a company? 
I had raised a seed round before yeah, okay. that. Yeah, but so yeah. but this is the first time like you're you're on this journey raising capital. Yep. I think, you know, I'd love to ask you if you were to now reflect on your journey of raising capital, what advice would you have for founders not only in this different market, but you know, I'm sure you have conversations with the, your investors and their change of thinking in this market. Like where do you see it and you know, what advice would you give yourself if you were now fundraising today? I, I, you know, I'd say bootstrap as much as possible at the end of the day, you know, like, I think you can get a lot of validation, um, in really cheap ways. Sometimes even you have a product idea, like make a TikTok ad for <laughs> the product and just run it on a bunch of demographics and see if you even have any interest. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a lot of people make the mistake of just, you know, doubling it down on something that they think would work, but they don't really have any way of validating till a lot of money has been sunk into it. And, yeah. you know, so it's a tricky one. I think we are in a pretty unique position because we have a product that is the result of, you know, seven years worth of work in a very specific niche industry that we know inside and out and, yeah. um, you know, see a lot of potential in and have a really unique take on. And at the end of the day, that's the core thing that, was able to get us through these steps. Um, you know, if you just look at my fundraising journey, it looks like, oh, you know, you came out of college and before, <laughs> like in a couple months, you had like 200 million plus valuation round. But there were a lot of steps before that, which were build a small project, take it to a festival, get some press, put it out in, in the world, help it find an audience, go try to get it sold to a platform that will publish it. Like, there are a lot of those steps that allowed us to see what was working in that space and what wasn't working in order to have a unique perspective on, you know, something that was. And, you know, the the reason the the round also made sense was because we were bringing in pretty ridiculous amounts of revenue through yeah. NFTs and that was an opportunistic kind of setup, but regardless we did execute it really nicely and there was clearly a lot of market validation and demand that made it easy. So um, I think it's just important to stay on it. Um, you know, Nico, who led our seed, um, I basically first pitched to him like probably two and a half years before he wrote the check. Wow. And every three months I'd send him an update and he would say, awesome job, great updates, still a no, you know, <laughs> until yeah. it was a yes. And so it, it was, you know, there was yeah. a long process behind it still. Totally. Yeah. No, that's... It's so cool to hear like the, the opportunistic perspective, but also the timing, right? Like you guys not only timed it great, but you, you put yourself in a position to have the runway to go execute on what you want. I'd love to talk about team because like, what you guys are building, as you said, is so specific. Uh, what does the team look like when it comes to building AR and where do you spend your time as a founder? So this has been a big thing, right? It's been a big learning process. Um, we hired 50 people last week. Last uh, week? Sorry, last, oh. sorry, my bad. Um, last year, uh, yeah. um, which was a ridiculous journey, you know, yeah. going through, you know, you're constantly hiring. There was a time where I wasn't even talking to every single person that was being brought on. And I think we made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, you know, we learned from them really quickly. Um, we This is actually something I've not spoken about publicly. We didn't really make a public announcement out of it or anything, but... We did let go of people as well late last year. Um, we let go of 10, 10 people, which was a significant chunk of the company. 
and you know we've been a lot more careful with hiring and you know have just made things a lot tighter yeah but that's just how you learn you know what i mean like at the end of the day if you're going to scale something really quickly there are going to be you know moments that you you made certain decisions based on things where that made sense at the time that over time have not made sense so um i think we are at a place right now that i i'm feeling very strong about um this year we started off fresh with a new setup um our head of design is now our vp of product um and really the way that we're working is him and i have a pretty much three hour long working session every evening and we open figma you know we like have a very design first kind of approach we get yeah. in figma together the ceo and the head of product um him and i update each other on things that have happened throughout the day he's based in london so okay. you know we meet at 10 p.m every evening and in those three hours we have a list of features we're looking at and we grab one of them and we make a bunch of decisions we try to get to a bunch of conclusions and whatever raw material we need for those decisions has been already gathered and then those decisions go through a cycle uh you know a process that is cyclical where he takes them to the design team i take them to other people in the leadership next day we get thumbs ups all across the board <laughs> like this is great this is great this needs to be adjusted it goes to design it gets converted to wireframes or flows it comes back to us next week because we're doing this every day there are multiple streams of work that are happening at the same yep. time um they come back we finalize the flow and it becomes ui and gets spec'd out and starts being implemented so that's been a flow this year that's been working really well where we are making decisions on a high level about everything but once those decisions are made they go to their respective departments and there's enough autonomy for the designers and developers that are working on the specific features to make their own decisions within the framework that has been set up um yeah if that makes sense yeah no that's very cool and totally understand that um when you think about the future of productizing what you've built and the use cases into the future I, i'd love to dive into the you know the ar gaming aspect of the business and you know where you see it going where you see you know main adoption happening into not only this year but years to come yeah so you know i think really we're on mobile and we're a game so really we're looking at the mobile gaming market and the mobile gaming market is pretty interesting it's something that i've been learning a lot about more recently because obviously we got to tackle that now and the opportunity at hand is really quite compelling um because first of all it's the largest segment in gaming right it's bigger than mobile sorry it's bigger than console and pc combined and um a lot of the existing players in th those kind of markets like even microsoft right they're trying to acquire activision with the intention of getting yeah. exposure to mobile gaming so everyone's trying to figure out mobile gaming and it's such a large thing but it sucks if you think about mobile gaming it <laughs> sucks like it's really yeah. bad like uh most mobile games are you know clones that people are just churning out overly monetized they're slot machine type in-app purchasing <laughs> you know yeah. you're constantly buying something to basically bypass the gameplay either it's that kind of a setup or it's ports of console games like that are working um on mobile but when it comes to like mobile gaming the next generation of mobile gaming that can truly utilize the fact that this device is very powerful mobile phones are 
quite you know strong now in terms of the sensors they have available and it's a different beast it's not console gaming it's not yeah. pc gaming you have cameras you have lidar you have you know like good compute power everyone has it your friends have this phone like the potential to create something new that truly utilizes its sensors and you know to create a new form of gameplay that you know is ubiquitous that a lot of the world engages in and your friends play in i think that's a really really large opportunity that if someone can come and make something that's not purely exploitative with you know the shelf life of like a day yeah. and like is actually good i think that would be really significant so that's what we're focused on right now is how do you build you know this new type of mobile game that people just love and they have you know uh, experiences with their phone that they've never had before you know and where does that go from here there are many places it could go you know the game itself could become you know a social hub where you have friendships and all the things that emerge out of it i think we've seen this happen with Fortnite and things yep. like that where you know you can have live concerts and this and that like the app itself can grow into that space if we're thinking aspirationally about where this could go um another scenario could be that this becomes a genre of mobile games we do this but then we go you know form partnerships with other people's ips and build them yeah. ar games as well that work with their ip that use a lot of the things that we're building so um i think there are various scenarios um the thing about running a startup is you can't move forward with too many presumptions you have to take it a day at a time and really follow through what becomes the optimal path because at the end of the day a lot of these are you know correct paths mm -hmm. i think people get obsessed with you know a vision or one specific <laughs> path for themselves and we don't think like that we just you know do the best thing we can at any given moment that's so cool to hear and you know i, I think it just it becomes more clear as we have this conversation about this idea of accepting change and, and pivoting, right? Like from, yeah. from inception of starting the company to working with different festivals to then NFTs and just not only following the market, but just being open to change. Um, I, I would love to hear some of your ideologies as a founder when it comes to the lessons that you've learned over the years of, you know, building and growing a startup, uh, you know, outside of, pivots and changing what are some of the lessons that you've learned throughout this journey as a founder that you'd want to you know tell young founders today that may be just getting started um i think it's really important it's really important to be at least somewhat technical i think it depends on the thing you're doing but if you are trying to start a technology company i think uh, founders that have some background or at least are willing to get into it right like i think that's uh you can better communicate with your engineers, your designers. Like, it's this is something that a lot of people say. I'm not, this is not something new that I'm saying. But I think even design, you know, like we are a generation that grew up with apps. You know, yep. if you're a founder, I'm assuming, especially if you're working in software and technology, I'm assuming you have a pretty good grasp of just apps and UI and interactions because you live with them, you yep. know, like if you're thinking about those things, you're constantly noticing those <laughs> things in the apps that you're using. So if you have a, if you have that, you have to, you know, listen to that intuition at the end of the day, you are the founder. And like, I think that, um, you should guide through your intuition, how those things emerge, because that's, what's different between a startup and a large company in a large, large company, you can 
get together, you know, in a conference room and make some committee decisions and have some researchers go out in the field and A-B test something, and that's how you get to conclusions. But in order to create something from zero, you know, to go from zero to something, it's there is not a formula to it. I think there is a, a certain like sprinkle of magic and intuition that, you know, needs to be yeah. applied um, from the founder themselves. I I agree. And, you know, one thing for, for us at Media Kids, one of our, um, like the hurdles was my co-founder and I, we were actually, we were both non-technical, right? Like he, and finding that initial CTO was such an important part of our journey. And it was, I think the day it was a struggle. It was something that we had to overcome and when initially fundraising, right? Like it's, it's not the most optimal environment. And we learned that very quickly where on your end, it's, it's quite different and and being technical and having really technical founders is puts you at such an advantage, especially in tech, obviously. And and we heard that over and over again. Um, If it wasn't AR, what what other industries do you find exciting and like, do you look at it as something that you just keep your, you know, you, you keep your head on the pulse there outside of AR? You know, um, when I chose AR, uh, it's like, it's like, you know, I got married, you know what <laughs> I mean? Like I, I don't have eyes for anything <laughs> else at that point. Yeah. And the only time I did flirt with something was crypto, <laughs> yeah. you know, like when, uh, two years ago when all that stuff was happening, I did find the fundamentals really quite compelling. You know, the idea of interoperability, having a standard of assets that, you know, are interchangeable, having more control with the, you know, player or the user where they either own or have control over what happens with assets. They have somewhat of a pull in how the decision-making gets put together. Those things were all really compelling. That's why I started kind of questioning. I'm like, wow, like I, AR is my foundational thing. And we are doing a consumer mobile app right now that has a lot of potential. But I am excited about these concepts. Like, should I follow through with them or not? And whenever I get that feeling, usually the answer is yes, do it right <laughs> now. Don't wait for it. You know, this is not, oh, one day I'll sell Jadu and then I'll start something in crypto. That I, I don't think like that. You give everything to the thing you have in front of you right now. There's yeah. no future aspirations uh, almost. So, um, yeah, we decided to kind of merge those two things together and made it work the way that it did. And right now, you know, we're uh, trying to be careful with our steps, focusing on the things that are working and making sure that the things that are not working, um, if they have future potential, we remain open to them. Um, and are, you know, pretty clinical with our strategy around them. But that's, that's pretty much what I would say. Yeah. About. Uh, what about AI? Do you, do you see that impacting in a positive way of what you're building or like, what's your overall consensus of AI where it currently is? No, because not only are the technical background, but just how do you see it impacting your business? I think AI is just going to impact everything, you know, um, and is already impacting yeah. everything and that's fine by me you know what i mean <laughs> like it's it's i don't think it's like some insane um you know differentiator for us i think we will have to use a lot of ai i think all our competitors and other people in all of these spaces will also have to use a lot of ai um ai is being used um first of all on an individual basis by all our teams and developers that yeah. we encourage that you know there are developers in our teams that are solving bugs with ChatGPT and things like that today. And that's great. Yeah. That's 
I have no complaints about that whatsoever. <laughs> you're not in school. You're not trying to prove anything. We're just trying to make the most progress possible, you know? Yeah. And when it comes to incorporating in the project, uh, our approach has been to not force it in, you know, just because AI is a buzzword that right now, and there's a lot of activity around it, doesn't mean we're going to slap on a bunch of AI features, you know, it yeah. needs, it needs to exist for a reason. So a lot of AI already exists and like we're recognizing planes and we're doing all the stuff that is already like, you know, you're cross referencing libraries of data in order to determine if this is a table, that's a window, whatever. Yeah. So there's a lot of like visual oriented AI that we are going to be utilizing. Are we also going to be utilizing a lot of natural language processing kind of stuff? Most likely, but nothing immediate. Yeah. Got it. No, that's super great perspective. A uh, couple more questions before we wrap up. I know we talked about it a little bit briefly. Uh, just looking into the future, what excites you this year with what you're building? And for those that you know are, are hearing what we're talking about today, mobile gaming and actually utilizing a product, uh, like what should they look forward to moving into 2023? Um, from our perspective, you know, multiplayer AR. I think uh, if we can show gaming work in this format where it's multiplayer and it's changing your space and you know you're taking a character and throwing it across the room and it's hitting your wall i think that's really going to be really compelling from our side um we have uh, a strategy on how all that's going to come together we have a build that we're planning to release that's going to be more of a test build um you know in march and based on how that goes we will kind of plan for public release but before this end end of this year like if we can create a narrative as a company, the narrative that I'm looking for is along the lines of, you know, Gen Alpha, which is the next generation after Gen Z, believe it or not, they're already yeah. 13. Like, you know, 13 to 16 year olds are getting into AR gaming in this format. It's different from what the generations before them did. Yep. It's unique to them. You know, like when I was 13, 14, <laughs> that's like, it's the super defining kind yeah. of time in your life. And Absolutely. Like the games you find, the games you play. And, you know, right now, everything you find is, has been done before. It's very homogenous. It's like very comparable. Something new and exciting needs to happen for the next generation, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's so cool to even hear that because like I'm, I'm 22, right? It's, and it's such a different time of like being that age of those defining years of, yeah. and you hear all these different things, whether that's crypto or, AR gaming, uh, I, I find it very cool for the people that are 13, 16 right now, that, that younger generation that are, you know, their their whole life is being defined by these new technologies that are changing so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, last question would be, if you could go back and give your piece, give yourself a piece of advice, business, entrepreneurship, life advice in general, what would that advice be and why? Um... I would say, well, look, like knowing everything I know now, obviously, <laughs> I would just go back three years ago and try to, you know, build way more like how we're building now. Um, but I think uh, I think one thing that um, I really try to lean in on um, the older I get is my identity as, you know, as a Pakistani, you know, I, I grew up there my whole life and I, I think I've been really lucky to travel a bunch and live in a lot of places. And I think that just gives you a really wholesome perspective over things and how you build. 
And um, I'd say the advice I would give is to just lean in on that even more, even at an earlier age. Because I feel really lucky, honestly, as a Pakistani, because uh, on one hand, you'd think, oh, like there was so much terrorism, 2007, 2009, like, you know, it's the worst passport to have. You can't really get into any country. There, there are a lot of disadvantages to being a Pakistani. But um, the older I get, I realize all the advantages. They're pretty significant because the thing is, like, if you're from Pakistan, you, you know, probably grew up Muslim, which means you've had a lot of exposure to the Arab world and the Muslim, like, legacy, which is a pretty compelling, you know, like, yeah. part of the world and pretty compelling history that, that a lot of stuff today is based on like all the yeah. al algebra algebra and al algorithms and everything comes from that but at the same time you're also very closely linked to the indian history you know which is a very different completely different lineage you know yeah. there's so much richness out of that and then whether you like it or not the british also ruled over you for 200 years so there is a lot of exposure to just the west through yeah. you know i grew up learning english my dad's an english teacher like there is a lot of richness in terms of like where I grew up. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world. And just leaning in on that and making that part of your work, I think is good. I love to hear that. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on the show today. Where is the best place for everyone watching or listening to follow you, to learn more about Jadu and to just follow along with the journey? Yeah. So um, for me, I'd say Instagram Asadj Malik, A S A D J M A L I K, and for Jadu, um, Jadu Avas, J A D U A V A S on Twitter. Um, I think those are the best places. Perfect. Well, I will make sure to link all of that down below. Asad, thank you so much for again coming on the show today. It's been such a pleasure having you. And for everyone listening, make sure you go subscribe, and I will put everything that we spoke about today in the description. Thank you so much.